When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This week's show is brought to you by the classic reprint of Die Macher. Find out more at Spielworks.de. Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a new face in the world of board game publishing. As head of the Grand Gamers Guild, he steered this fledgling company's first steps into modern board gaming, with successful Kickstarters culminating in last year's barnstorming Endeavour Age of Sale. My guest this week is Mark Spector. Mark, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. So to start then, how difficult was it for you to choose the five games that you're going to take to the cabin? Um, I would say middling. It was the first few came obvious to me. And then the last ones, I had to uh, actually go walk the wall of board games that I have and uh, give it some thought. And then actually after walking the wall and not finding anything jumping out at me, they kind of came to me in a flash. So it was a matter of sort of getting my subconscious working on it. I mean, sort of what criteria were you using when you were deciding on games to take? Well, I was kind of making the assumption that there was going to be some people at the cabin uh, for me to play with. And that said, I wanted games that would provide a, a depth of experience and a breadth of experience and that I felt could be gone back to time and again. And what do you see games as? Do you see them as things to use? Do you see them as things to cherish? Are you a collector as much as a gamer? No, I um, I don't consider myself a collector of pretty much anything. I used to be, when I was a kid, uh, just crazy about comic books, and then before that, baseball cards, and um, I still have oodles of books, but quite frankly, if uh, if they all, if everything burned up, I'm not sure that I would miss it all that much. I mean, I'd be sorry, don't get me wrong, but at some point, when you move from place to place to place, and all you're doing is carrying these things from one place to another, and you can't engage them on any um, substantial basis, it becomes kind of kind of silly, kind of silly just to have all the stuff. So for me, games are more about the people at the table than the games themselves. 
I view it as a medium over which to connect with people I care about more than uh, more than to engage the game. And so does this conflict to sort of mark the gamer conflict with mark the publisher in this? Because one thing about Endeavour is that... I mean, it was certainly a, a lot of thoughts seemingly went into the components and the way the game looked and the way the game felt, you know. Sure. So I can absolutely appreciate a um, a beautifully crafted object, whether it's um, the words in the pages of the book or the format the book is printed in, you know, heavy stock and gold foil embossing and a nice leather bound cover. Um, I totally love that stuff. But I think when you lose the experience for the package that it's wrapped in, um, that's when you begin to become a little bit lost. And I think, um, you know, for example, to go back to comic books, I think that's what happened in the 90s when uh, it didn't become about the content of the books. It became about the die-cut gold foil limited edition covers and all sorts of craziness that, uh, you know, I mean, you just don't have time for anymore. I mean, do you see that in games? I mean, it, it's really interesting. I... Um the the new version of Arboretum came out with these shiny foil cards, and most people found them actually grotesque in the end. I I think they they remind me of stickers that I got in my Panini album. But do you do you think there is this this thing in games? Games are going towards the kind of production bling. Could it be argued that some games succeed simply because of how they look and how they feel rather than how they play? Oh, absolutely. I think um, I think Kickstarter shows that with all the minis games that come out. Um, I, I try not to be too controversial on Facebook, at least in a professional sense. But the other day, actually a couple of weeks ago, somebody posted uh, an image of a, a, yet another big minis game that was coming. And... I was, I don't know, must have been in a mood because I put a comment on there that I deleted about a day later that said, oh, look, another minis game with average gameplay and beautiful pieces of plastic. And again, I'm not a minis gamer. I was judging something solely on its looks, but I guess I just, I have a hard time believing that these multi-million dollar minis-based projects are bringing as much quality gameplay to the table as something like Power Grid, for example, or, oh goodness gracious, I'm trying to think of another amazing game whose table presence is not all that. Castles of Burgundy. And I've never even played Castles of Burgundy, but it's legendary for being an ugly yet amazing game. And actually, funny funny timing is I've just recently seen they're giving that one an aesthetic makeover. So, so yeah, I do think there is a, a strong tendency, especially in today's gaming culture, for gameplay to get lost under a facade. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you're you're a publisher and you're the face of your company. Now with social media, everyone has access to everyone all the time. Do you find that you don't really, you can't comment as a gamer as much as you once did? Do you, if you see something that you don't think is good or you don't think is right, you have to reel back because of your professional obligation? Um, I would say so. I mean, I try to be judicious. Certainly, you know, people can make comments and have about the games that the Guild has produced, um, their merit in the landscape of gaming, which is, you know, constantly more competitive and ever-changing. So especially when I've not engaged a game, I try not to judge it uh, personally, or I should say silently or publicly. Um, That would be unfair. Now, if I did play a game and I felt that something I had to say was noteworthy, 
um, whether it was positive or negative, I think I would just be conscious of how I presented it because you can go online and blast just about anything and be incendiary. Uh, but you can also give truthful commentary and yet still be uh, diplomatic. I mean, do you think that there's, do you see that there's a separation between your pre- professional life and your personal life now? Not just in your particular profession, but with everyone, what with, you know, Twitter being, so I, I saw something, I saw something the other day and they, it was this guy and I, I don't know what he was tweeting, he's tweeting some pretty horrible stuff, but someone said, and, and someone had tweeted something like, next time I see someone like this tweet, I'm going to go on their Twitter and I'm going to see if they have any reference to their employment and then I'm going to contact their employer and ask them if this is an official stance of the company. And so is there is there any... Do we have a separation from our professional life to our personal life anymore? And do we have to constantly be vigilant about what we say in public? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I think it's interesting if you look at the uh, different publishers and their tenure in the industry. I think it's very interesting how you have a wave of publishers who have a tremendous presence and yet their tremendous, tremendous presence in the industry and yet their online presence is minuscule. I mean, maybe a product announcement and never a comment. And then you have the uh, other end to which the pendulum has swung where someone's presence in the industry is based entirely on how vociferous they can be about the next big thing. And, you know, at some point I do have to ask myself, you know, if I see every moment of your life and every moment of that life is a, a new next best game on the table, how much of it is genuine? Um, so, so you can, you can ride that. I try to ride that line. It's probably the best thing to say. I, um, you know, I'm very particular about what I put out under my company brand on social media and I'm a little less judicious when I'm commenting on my own personal thread as Mark Spector. And if people take issue with what I say uh, as Mark Spector, then, you know, then don't be on my personal thread. <laughs> you know, is what I would say. And of course, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I definitely would make two separate identities um, as business Mark and personal Mark. But uh, but yeah, it is almost impossible to, to undo the uh, tornado of relationships that are all mixed up these days so i I want to go back to the beginning so first of all as a kid when did games enter your life so i don't really know when i started playing board games with my mom who was my primary entertainer or opponent or whatever the case may be i know my mom was always a gamer and, and i wouldn't call her a gambler in the sense that she was always going to the casino and playing high stakes poker but she had her regular poker group her regular mahjong group her regular rummy group, things that she went to. So she was always a gamer. And um, I don't know, probably six, eight, ten, things like that are when um, some innocuous, easy mass market board games, you know, hit the hit the table between her and I. And, uh, you know, and then eventually she got me into playing basic card games like AC Ducey and Blackjack, Kings in the Corner, things like that. So, you know, it's funny. It took me a while to actually recognize and and erase the line that I had mentally made between card gaming with a traditional deck of cards that she did so uh, enthusiastically and, and board gaming as we see it today. Well, I think it's interesting because I still have that distinction. Even though I played traditional card games for years, you know, I they don't feel like games in the sense that 
Skull King does or Diamonds does. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Absolutely. It, 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 uh, it was only when I took that look back when I could able, you know, when I could look and say, hey, my mom was actually kind of a gamer. And so you said you grew up in Florida. Was there was there much sort of indoor activity in Florida? Because it seems you could spend an entire childhood outdoors now. Oh, absolutely. But I will say that there was for me because I was uh, a fat and television-bound child. I also liked to read a lot. So, so those were my indoor activities. And while I wasn't exactly antisocial, as we would see it today, I definitely was someone who was more happy in the air conditioning doing something solitary than I was going out. I mean, I, I was forced to play sports because that's what my dad was after. So I played t-ball and I played soccer, but it was, it was miserable. It was nothing I liked on any level ever um, until much, much later in my life. Were you a, a gregarious kid or were you a a lonesome kid? Did you spend a lot of time on your own in your own company? Um, I would say I had a small group of friends. I did things socially with them, but I was more than happy to be alone and spend a whole, an entire day reading a book with um, the amount of attention that I don't even have the mental capacity to, to manifest anymore. I mean, between our moment-to-moment society and the other things uh, that command my attention, there's no way I could read a book for an entire day. But uh, but yeah, that was that was relatively commonplace when I was a kid. So you also said in your biography, and this seems to be the more and more I do this, the more and more this seems to be a connection that so many gamers have, and this is D&D. So when did D&D enter your life, and sort of how important was it as a formative experience? So I had always been a reader, uh, my entire life, uh, mostly just normal childhood books of, of normal, like like not science fiction, not what we consider genre fiction these days. And um, then around the age of 14, 15, my friend Doug introduced me to Dungeons and Dragons and we started playing that and did that all through high school. He was also an, a crazy avid reader and introduced me to the Dragonlance books. And so it was really sort of at that time that I engaged both the gaming and the literature all at once. And the the world is amazing. Um, those Chronicles books that uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman put together were just completely eye-opening. And, and that was definitely the plunge down the rabbit hole from both a literary and a gaming standpoint. So do you see sort of... Because I think... When I think back to as to why I got into gaming, I got into gaming at about the age of sort of 35, really. And I think why I got into it is because I'd been primed as a as a teenager with Warhammer 40k. I didn't I didn't even look at it for 25 years after that, but it sort of primed me. So my brain was always sort of open. Do you do you think that D&D had that effect for you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It showed me it showed me worlds, like like literally the world building that was done, um and then what you could do within that. So, you know, and then, uh, of course, you know, now we know there's uh, tons of worlds with, with, with lots of options and, you know, it's crazy and, and fantastic. And, and do you confirm, because I often find myself frustrated because I don't conform to the sort of nerd checklist. So I detest comics, really. I, I think Marvel movies are the absolute, the absolute 
you know, destruction of our cultural heritage. And sort of, it's only really board games are the only thing, the nerdy pursuit that I have. Are you one of those people who can tick off, you know, the comic books, the role-playing games, the Marvel movies, all of that sort of thing? So uh, I was a huge comic book fan as a kid. Uh, Superman is and always will be my favorite hero ever. I mean, Christopher, I would say... My more formative than Dungeons and Dragons was probably Christopher Reeve's portrayal of Superman. Uh, he is absolutely the iconic uh, image of of that hero. So that was probably the very first thing that uh, made the light bulb light up in my head. Um, so I did pursue comic books in my early teenage years. These days, I will still read them, but they def- definitely don't resonate with me uh, as much as they used to. Um, I, I, I won't lie. I love the Marvel movies. It's great to watch my kids' eyes light up. Uh, I wish DC could get their train on the track because, you know, like I said, Superman's my favorite hero. But I, mean, I don't know. It's it's like they put together a movie and then they hire someone to intentionally derail it and say, how can we screw this up and make it boring or objectionable or not true to the the archetype of the hero? It's it's insane. But um, in terms of the role play games. Really, D&D was my only love. I played Vampire. I didn't really dig anything about it. I've played Star Wars once as a role-playing game, and I just kind of feel lost. I, I don't really know what to do. I don't know, you know, the archetype of my character doesn't compel me to do anything. Maybe I just had bad DMs. I suppose that's possible. But uh, yeah, d and is pretty much it for me. And so, so you got into board gaming in a quite sort of peculiar manner, the way you, you got in contact with Catan. So tell us about your life as a mystery shopper. Oh, yeah. So early, uh, I, I shouldn't say early, let's say 20 years ago, um, I was just beginning a sales career in insurance. And sometimes things are slow, but, you know, you do what you need to do to get stuff done. And one of the things I found I could fit into my day was mystery shopping. It was something I'd always wanted to do. And just, I guess, to clarify for some folks who might not know, mystery shopping is where you're contracted by a third-party company to go in and, and assess the service of, of an organization. Um, I mean, I visited in my city every Starbucks, every McDonald's, every TGI Fridays, every Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, that you can imagine and been there multiple times to assess the food and the service. And then, of course, occasionally there was uh, more of a retail store type service. And I've been to candle stores and pool supply stores. But... In the early 2000s, one of the unique things that cropped up in Grand Rapids was the Wizards of the Coast store. And I was just, you know, getting into Dungeons and Dragons at that time in the sense that I was going to run my own game and revisit the property because it had really dropped off in my college years. And, uh, you know, I, I eagerly, greedily scooped up every month the mystery shops at the Wizards of the Coast stores and began by purchasing every D&D book, whether it was a core book or a third-party supplement. And when those ran out, the the assignments kept coming and they gave me $20 a month to spend. So I said, shoot, I may as well try some of this other stuff they have hanging around. And so went in there and told the, you had to come up with a scenario. So I told the scenario, the woman who was working that I was looking for a game for my wife for probably her birthday at that point or something like that. And she pointed me towards Catan and I took it home and you know, they did a great job as they always did. Cause at some point they became, you know, aware that I was the mystery shopper and it became a situation of, well, you won't say, and I won't say, and we'll just go through the dance and here we both are. So, um, but yeah. And then it was a couple weeks later that we broke out with Catan with some friends. And I will say that it was a mighty challenge. 
I had never engaged gaming that way before. And our very first game with the uh, other couple that we played with took something like, I think, four hours just because we were so, just because we were so uh, befuddled by the rules. But, uh, but eventually we got through it and it was, it was great. Loved it. Couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't have, have, have liked it more than I did. And so that was the sort of impetus to get more into games, start playing these Euro games that had just come into America sort of five years previously. Then. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a unique thing to my brain. It, it tickled my, cere- uh, my, my cerebrum or whatever the word is in in a way that uh, it had not experienced before, even with all the even with all the role play gaming. And so do you think those games, those formative gaming experiences with those early Euro games molded who you are firstly as a gamer but also as a publisher oh definitely i mean you know you get a certain introduction and it certainly sets the parameters for how you view everything else and you know for me as well as many others Catan was obviously a gold standard so yeah we were in great shape so your first game then is a classic and one that sort of no one's picked, which which surprises me because it's it's a really great game and it's a really great sort of gateway game. And this is Small World. So firstly, why is this one going to the cabin? Uh, Small World's going to the cabin because it is uh, hands down the game that I first fell in love with. It, um, it, it, uh, it, the art in it hearkened me back to all the cartoons that I loved as a kid, the Smurfs and the Snorks and the Gummy Bears and um, and that idea of these creatures, these fantastical creatures running around with, uh, you know, their own agenda and thwarting the villain. And, you know, the art was evocative and the gameplay was accessible. And, yeah, it was just really, really sang to me when I saw the first images of it. And then once I actually sat down and played it at Origins and watched the combinations play out and... And actually, of course, this doesn't hurt, but, um, you know, it came very, very close to winning. It's almost like when you play a co-op, right? If you win it the first time, it's not as, um, not as intriguing, but when you, uh, when you almost win, when I almost won Small World, it just, my, my eyes went wide and I was very excited about playing it again and seeing what I could do the next time around with what the different combinations that came up. And so have you played Vinci, the first iteration of this game? No, I haven't. So I actually don't really have that as a reference point, which is kind of kind of funny and a little sad. I definitely would like to get that experience in, in my repertoire and know how it, uh, how it changed. And so what, I mean, firstly, do you still play Small World? Oh, uh, yeah, actually. I find it, um, you know, as my kids get older and it's a game that I can break out with them. And the mechanics, my youngest is now 12, and I think she probably played Small World for the first time last year when she was 11. Um, And while she didn't win, it was a game that mechanically she could grasp. And so it's certainly a game that with five of us in the family, we can sit around the table and, and, you know, engage on an almost level playing field. Because you're so subject to the combinations that come up. Um, you know, someone whose gaming experience is not that of mine, not that I'm so extensive, but, you know, can can look at something, analyze it, and, and snatch that combination before I have a chance to get to it. And so what's your ethos when playing with your kids? Do you let them win, or is it dog-eat-dog dog around your table? Oh, it's, um, well, I wouldn't say it's dog-eat-dog, dog, 
Um, I would say that I, I don't ever let them win. That was definitely never part of, of how I approach things as a, as a parent. Um, for instance, last night we played a game called Quiddler, uh, which is a word game that a good friend got for me, uh, just recently. And obviously you would hope my vocabulary is markedly better than that of my kids. And by the time the game was done, though, uh, my daughter came in only one point behind me. Not just because it's a well-designed game where there are points awarded not just for the intricacy of your words, but for the number of words you can create and the length of the words. I mean, that helps lay, level the playing field. But because, you know, she has a decent vocabulary and she got it up to snuff and it turned out, you know, my middle son actually um, came in last place. So... Yeah, I was, I played to win, but I certainly, you know, they would lay out their words and I said, hey, wait a second, if you pop that letter in there, you can include it, not have to lose points for it. And they took advantage of that. So I don't mind helping, but I, I let them make their own first move. So I want to talk now about your transition from player to publisher. So what made you first think you might want to go into publishing? Uh, mostly because when I indulge something, things just seem to sort of get deeper and deeper and I look towards what I can do next. I'm not sure that I'd call it a, you know, dissatisfaction with what I'm doing and where I'm at, but it was just something that sort of occurred to me one day. I, you know, I began in the industry as a fan and then I was volunteering for conventions and then I was running games at conventions. Then I was running an event team at conventions. Then I ran my own convention. Uh, at some point as part of that process, I actually thought, hmm, what would it be like to publish a game? I'd had great experiences on Kickstarter. One of my first, uh, no, my very first Kickstarter was for Alien Frontiers, which is an amazing game. So, so in that sense, I had a very favorable introduction to Kickstarter and what it can produce. We all know that these days, not everything that comes out, no, let me change how I'm saying this. I would put Alien Frontiers up against almost any game that comes out on Kickstarter these days. That's how good it is and continues to be. Um, so it was just sort of this trail that I followed and we were planning a convention and it occurred to me, what would it be like to be a publisher? And could we actually, could we actually make publishing a part of our convention? That is to say, you know, you have to produce so many units and could we, you know, give a unit away to every attendee and make that part of our publishing model. And I brought that to my business partner and he rejected the idea which turned out to be fine because we dissolved that relationship. And, you know, as difficult as the dissolution of any business is, certainly if you have a, an intellectual property that is not able to be separated, you know, breaking that out then would be even more difficult, right? So it was very fortunate that he was not into it. He had basically said that he knew enough about publishing to know that it wasn't something he wanted to do. And he was like, hey, go ahead and, you know, you want to do it, go for it. Uh, so I did. And, and I guess sort of that's how I really let the the seed germinate and then one day i was listening to a podcast in my car and the um host of the podcast is a designer and he was saying how one of his designs had been set aside by not just one but two publishers and i paused the podcast called him up on the phone and said hey i think we should talk about publishing your game and so we sat down a couple weeks later looked at that game as well as a few other ideas he had in mind. And that's actually what eventually became Unreal Estate. Not the original game he was talking about, but one of the other other designs he showed me. And so 
I mean, Grand Gamers Guild sounds like a group of people. Is it just you? It, well, it is just me in the sense that it was sort of my baby, but but there no, it's definitely not just me. I mean, my wife is uh, my chief solvency officer, and Joshua Capel is my sometimes artist, lead developer, and graphic designer. I have um, a gentleman who is my submissions manager because I was getting myself in a bind where the submissions were coming in, and I wasn't giving people who had taken the time and energy to submit them um, due process. They were just getting shunted aside, and that's just not fair. Uh, and I have a web developer, and I have a marketer that I consult with. So no, definitely not. But the guild... Answer. Oh, go ahead. No, carry on. Well, I was just going to say that the, the guild idea does come out of, I guess, what you would say looking forward is sort of a dream to eventually have different lines of games that represent different things. At least that was the initial idea. Whether I'll ever get there is something that I toy with on a regular basis. And so... You've published mostly through Kickstarter, but you've also published um, the normal way through distribution channels. What are the benefits and drawbacks of both methods? So the biggest, okay, so Kickstarter, I think the biggest thing you get from Kickstarter is marketing. It is a place that in the industry today, people expect to be marketed to. They go there to peruse and be marketed to. And it's not the same kind of commercialization of things that we've come to disdain when we feel that something is being thrust down our throats. This is a, you know, a marketing platform that people engage with an enthusiasm. I would say that that's almost a thing unto itself. Um, and obviously it is really, really nice to have the money in the bank and be able to do things with that money as opposed to when you're in a precarious position, using your own capital to do it. Um, I guess the primary thing that I get out of the traditional publishing method is being able to take something that I personally feel has merit and marshal it to life without the marketing, without other people's money. And when it does well, like Stroop does, uh, it's a point of pride that, hey, I, you know, I'm not the designer, but I'm the publisher that saw the idea, helped to hone it and made it happen through, through uh, you know, the collective vision of the people that that I uh, work with. I, I mean, do you feel, have we got to a point now where, because, I mean, if you go back sort of five years, it seemed to me, Jamie Stegmeier is the great example of this. Amazing, amazing the, publisher. The, you become sort of a proper, inverted commas, publisher once you dispense with Kickstarter. Once you, you become a publisher that solely deals with the sort of conventional publishing channel. Do you think this is still the case? Or is there still suspicion with companies that solely go on Kickstarter? Or is this no longer the case, do you think? Um, I say yes to everything you said. Um, I, I think a lot of... How a publisher is viewed is depending upon how they represent themselves. You have publishers on Kickstarter who are suspicious, and you have publishers on Kickstarter who have turned it into a business model and and, and replicate it successfully like Tasty Minstrel Games. Oh, my goodness. Talk about mastering the medium. Um, everything, uh, everything is perspective, right? And so my goal personally and professionally is still to move away from Kickstarter. And while things could change from moment to moment... I think I'm making that move in the sense that I still feel that I need to go to Kickstarter with my larger projects, uh, but with smaller projects, things that would be equivalent to Stroop these days or 
something, um, well, a game that I that I just started with called Shikoku, which I'm localizing from a publisher in Spain. I'm doing that with my own money, or at least I should say the guild's money. Um, you know, I always felt, and I'll allow them to remain nameless, but I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a publisher on Kickstarter who was kickstarting the localization of a game that had been released at Essen. And it just kind of made me scratch my head. You're not making the game better. You're not changing it. It's not your idea. Why do you need to kickstart it? And I don't know if that it was uh, an attempt to make that the business model. I don't know if that was um, a decision in the moment because of financial position. But I recently wrote, I can't remember if I published this or not um, through my weekly emails or whatever the case may be, but maybe perhaps somewhat naively, I still view Kickstarter as a need-based platform. And I feel that I won't go to Kickstarter unless I need to. And so I, um, you know, decided to do Shikoku on my own with the money that I, through through other projects, had squirreled away and kept in the bank because I could. Um, Endangered is not a game that I can do on my own. That is just no way, no how. I've paid for the art. I've paid for many other aspects of it, but I, I can't get it produced without help. And I think it's a game that not only needs that help from my business perspective, but actually deserves the marketing that Kickstarter will bring to it. Something that, unfortunately, I'm not Jamie Stegmeier, who has uh, an email database of X thousand people and people who, and, and I don't say this with any derision, but people who hang on the words that he puts out regularly, the, the audience he's cultivated. So I still need Kickstarter to build that. I, I'm climbing that hill. Uh, Jamie's you know, on the other side of it in some measure. Although recently he's published some articles where he postulates going back to Kickstarter. Um, so who knows, you know, um, but I definitely think about who I want to be, keep an eye on publishers like him, as well as many others. So your next game then is a classic. And this is Power Grid. Is this one of the games that drew you into the hobby? It's actually not. I do remember playing it relatively early on, uh, I still find the rule book to be quite a challenge, but so so if I'd have whew, if I'd have tried to engage that one earlier, I probably would have thrown up my hands in in frustration. But I remember the first time I played it, we definitely powered through it. But Power Grid always provides such a satisfying experience every time that I think um I think that's where you know it really shines, not just in the game itself, but in the juxtaposition that you always have to be calculating against every other player and how the game will change because of who's playing it and how they play it. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so 
when you think about sort of because when I, I I played Power Grid once, I played the card game a bit more, uh, but I played Power Grid once and I enjoyed it. But when I think about sort of the sort of colossuses of games, the the games that sort of stand out, Power Grid always seems to figure in there. Where do you think it ranks in the sort of classics of the hobby? Oh, I would say absolutely top five. Um, I mean, not that I know what the other four are, but you know, for a game that's fifteen years old. And, and that's honestly, mechanically, a little bit fiddly. I mean, these days, if it came out, I'm not sure you could get away with what it tries to pull off in the phases um, and how they play out. But, you know, just this past weekend, I played a six-player game of Power Grid. And most of the time, when you play a six-player game of anything, you're on your phone. You're wondering when it's going to be your turn. You're trying to think about your moves and yet not really able to because there's five other people between you and your next turn. And someone at the table made the comment in the middle of the game, and this is completely correct, how many games do you play at all these days, whether it's six people or four people, where you're watching what everyone does every turn? We were all raptly paying attention to the game because, I mean, not just playing to win, but because that's what Power Grid demands of you. Um... It's just too important to see what other people are doing to to not pay attention. So I got together with Uli Blenemann from Spielworks again, and he gave me an insight in how he actually got the job to reprint Die Macher. Yeah, I think I was um, at the right spot at the right time. So Kalle was Kalle Schmiel. Kalle was uh, thinking about a new edition and I was um, present at one of his early playtests when he tried some of the changes for the new edition. Um, that was in Mallorca, Spain, and we played and immediately after that first game I asked him if Spielworks could redo the game, if I could do the new edition. And um, so I was in a way lucky and uh, Kalle agreed and of course it helped that I know Kalle for a long time definitely for more than 20 years and so this definitely helped too. So to find out more go to spielworks.de So how important do you think someone like Freedom and Freezer is to the hobby of gaming and and what do you think of his sort of skewed original view on game design? So I think that, I mean, and this has come up before, I think if you are going to look at a Mount Rushmore of gaming, he certainly deserves to be on there. I mean, Power Grid is definitely one of the titans that ushered in modern gaming as we know it. And I'm not well-versed in all his titles, so I'd be hard-pressed to to say he has or hasn't made another game these days that, that rivals it. But, um, I mean, I guess if you force me to say, I'd say probably not, because there's no other game that, you know, is screaming at me to get it to the table in quite the way Power Grid does, and yet still, I don't get it there enough. So I want to move on now and take a bit of a detour into a different area. And and this is because in your bio, you sort of stressed quite a lot the sort of issues you'd had with weight as a child and then sort of into your adulthood. And so you said that you struggled with weight since you were a child. Where do you think this stemmed from? Bless my parents, but I think that they were woefully lacking in discipline and overly indulgent. Um, pretty much, you know, just the formation and consistency of bad habits. And I mean, I still today will tell you, I love food. 
I love to eat. I love, you know, sitting at a table and the smell and the social activity and and just every every bit of it. It's just a matter of discipline that I don't allow myself to, you know, be who I was physiologically 20 years ago. And so did you grow up because I, I've had weight issues and my weight goes up and down. Did you feel ashamed about your weight or was this was it sort of an intrinsic shame that you felt or were people around you sort of constantly barracking about you about how big you were? Well, you know, I think I wouldn't have called it shame back then because I don't think I was self-aware enough to know that that's what it was. But when I look back, I mean, certainly I think my life was curtailed towards more sedentary activities because of the weight. And then the sedentary activities led to more weight gain. Uh, But in some ways, it also, you know, whether I'm sitting down reading a book or sitting down watching television, it all sort of fed my brain and made me who I am today. So, you know, I'll always struggle with it. That's not going to change. I mean, I'm still a bit of a lunatic about the uh, food and exercise regimen that I'm on. But um, so so I guess to answer your question, yes, I, I guess there was shame. You know, my mom was always obese. In fact, I would point to morbid ob- obesity as one of the things that contributed to her demise. My dad didn't really struggle with weight, but was always conscious of it. And um, yeah, it was just a uh, Something that I, you know, my cross to bear, so to speak, and still. And so how did you get a hold of it? You said it was sort of in your 20s. What was the turning point? Was there any turning point or was it just sort of an accrual of sort of negativity that made you just say, right, I've had enough. This is it. I'd say there were multiple turning points. In my senior year between of high school, uh, the summer before that, I had some friends who were enthusiastic about helping me get there. And so I did. And then I went to college and met my wife and things got um things got easy again there was a wonderful cafeteria and you know and, and i had a, a um you know the comfort of a relationship and so i allowed myself to be indulgent again and then it was um gosh i forget exactly what it was but eventually i got up to 306 pounds and my wife convinced me or made me or whatever the case may be to go to a nutritionist and that was in 2004 and so you know, it was that level of, of uh, I guess, rock bottomness in terms of, of weight and how that's concerned that made me take the bull by the horns. And pretty much ever since then, you know, it took me a year to get down to my goal weight. And then eventually I crept back up and then back down again and then back up. And now I'm on the way back down again through a lot of discipline. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been through phases where I've just eaten for the sake of it. And I've, I've gotten to the end of a pizza and thought, I, I didn't want to eat past three quarters of that and yet I just did and I you know you get to the end of it and you think oh my god what a what a I feel really ashamed of myself was there a compulsive element to your eating um I think part of it was emotional part of it was boredom um and you know nowadays aside from wanting to be good for myself I need to be good for my family I need to one be alive um and not uh not die of a heart attack, at least not from being overweight. I suppose you could, a heart attack could happen for other reasons. But then I also need to be an example to my family, which is something that my, you know, again, and this sounds terrible, but my parents definitely were not. They provided no discipline and no guidance. There was nary a vegetable in my house growing up. And I just recognize that I need to be an example for my kids so that when they grow up, 
there are vegetables on the table. And even if I can't make them exercise, um, they can at least see that, hey, dad goes down and exercises every single day. Maybe that's a good idea in this life. Um, I'll never forget, I read a Time Magazine article years ago that said, if you knew how good exercise was for you, you would never not do it. And that phrase stuck with me you know, to this day. I mean, it's probably been at least a decade. And so, you know, one thing, one of the many things America is famous for is for its obesity epidemic. You know, friends of mine come back from America and often say, you cannot believe the size of the people over there. I mean, where do you think this stems from? And I mean, how do we as a society go about fixing an issue like that? Oh, that, that is a really, really big question. I get very frustrated. I re- I'm, I'm going to meander a little bit here, but I remember years ago when the very first commercial appeared for one of those personal scooters and I was kind of like, oh, okay. And you didn't really see them around. And these days you see them everywhere. And I'm not saying there's not people who aren't legitimately sick and in need of them, but the number of these personal scooters that I see And I know they're not all from need. I know a lot of them are from want because it's so difficult to get around that that's one's only choice. And that becomes that reinforcing thing. I mean, how are you going to burn the calories and get up and exercise when you don't choose to get up and exercise? When you choose to take the elevator and not the stairs? When you choose to take the handicap spot that you got special access to with a pass rather than parking at the far end of the parking lot? Um... And wow, your comment about people actually coming back to home and, and com- I, I never knew that took place. That is that is actually astounding. Um, I think societally, we have a lack of discipline. I think that we have an abundance of food. Um, knowing, feeling hungry and knowing want and being okay with that is not something that modern America is willing to deal with. There's plenty of times that I'm legitimately hungry and I go, let's see, what have I eaten today? Rather than being on autopilot and going to the kitchen and grabbing whatever's there. Um, bad food is cheap. Good, nutritious food is more expensive. Oh, you've asked a, you know, a bigger question that I think I can ever hope to answer other than sort of a few bullet pointed shoot from the hip pieces of commentary. Um, you know, it's also a, you know, lack of, you, okay, let me change how I'm phrasing this. So how often do people get together and help one another make those choices? It's so easy to go to a party and indulge in all the crap that's out there. But, you know, how often, you know, do you go to your friend and say, if you want help with this, you know, I'm going to bug you. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm going to ask you if you exercise today. I'm going to ask you to type out for me every meal you ate. And let's talk about the choices you made and why you made them and how you can be conscious and not just grabbing what's there. Oh, man. yeah, I, It's hard, this topic, because it's so big. Um, and I don't have all the answers. I have the answers for me, mostly. Um, you know, and a lot of them came out of my time with my nutritionist along uh, years ago about being honest with yourself, about being conscious of your decisions, um, about you know, taking the stairs and, and just doing those little tiny things to create the behaviors to, you know, for short-term and long-term success. Sorry, I think I went on way at length on that one. <laughs> Wonderful. So uh, I want to move on now to your next game. And this is one that has incredible 
support behind it. It's incredibly well thought of game, and this this is in sale reflected in sales figures and also sort of critical acclaim. This is Gloomhaven. So so what? Firstly, what makes this stand out against other dungeon crawlers? Okay, so. The reason why I picked Gloomhaven is because it is the game that I am currently playing with my oldest uh, oldest two, my two sons, uh, weekly. So for me, not only, let's say I was at the cabin alone, not only would I be able to solo the game, but if I do have people there with me, it is a game that we all can play. And it um, provides a framework in which to do your uh, role-playing style dungeon crawling adventures that can go on for a really, really, really long time. Um, it is a gargantuan product. Um, but for me, it, I chose it mostly because of the memories that it will, it has made and that it will make. Because my kids aren't going to be at home forever. I mean, my oldest is 18 and will be out of the house soon. But the fact that he enthusiastically sits down with me to play Gloomhaven once a week, that's, uh, you know, time that can never be recaptured. And so do you think, I mean, obviously for you, because you you have this, you know, these reasons now wedded to Gloomhaven, but do you think as a game it deserves the reputation it has? I mean, I must I must confess, I'm rather ashamed that I've, I've not actually played Gloomhaven, so I can't comment on it as a game. Sure. So now, remember a few minutes ago when you asked me about public commentary on other people's products? This is the part where I'll, I'll do a little bit of a dance, but I'll still, I'll still be honest. Um, Gloomhaven's a great product. It is a tremendous value and an incredible creative effort for what it is. But I genuinely do not think it deserves to be the number one game on board GameGeek. It provides an amazing experience for what it is. Um, but in the spectrum of games, it's, it, it's not my favorite game. And, and while I don't go so far as to ask how can it be all these people's favorite game, because, you know, different strokes for different folks, certainly there are a number of people who engage it more often than I do, do so more enthusiastically and for other reasons. Um, but it's, you know, it's tremendous and obviously has risen to the top for reasons that even if they don't resonate with me personally, um, I'm still getting it to the table regularly for reasons of my own. And so is there anything about the way Isaac has modeled his company that changes the way you think about your own? Sort of. So what I'll say is that there is a design that I, at the moment, have opted not to go forward with that was campaign-esque or legacy-esque that I'd been talking about with a pair of designers. And I actually, that's actually the entire reason I bought Gloomhaven, because I said to myself that as a publisher, if I was ever going to go this direction, I really should know what I was getting myself into. Um, At the moment, and this is really something I haven't thought about, so you're getting sort of a not not pre-planned thoughts in my brain. This is really shooting, um, you know, from the hip. I think if I had to make the call, I'm not sure that it's a way I would ever go. I'm not sure I want a project that large to come out of the guild. I'm not sure that I want to ask gamers to indulge me for that long. I mean, one of the things that Gloomhaven has going for it is that I can play it weekly for two years and probably still not be done. Um, but I think that's also the thing it has going against it. And I'm more about, I don't want to say that necessarily. I was about to say I'm more about breadth of experiences than depth of experiences, but I don't think that's true. What I will say is that from a business standpoint, one of the hashtags that I try to use is game night go to, 
because one of my goals is to have a line of products that is so diverse and provides so many different experiences that you could spend all night with our games and not know you were playing games from the same publisher. That is the kind of company I want to be. And I would say that Gloomhaven is not that experience. Gloomhaven is a dungeon crawl that you'll do with the evolution of your characters over and over and over again, literally like a hundred times. So, and I don't say that with any disrespect. I just say it with res- with the idea that that's not the game that I want my company to produce, at least at this point in time. Great. So I want to talk, uh, extending on from this, I want to talk about being a small publisher in modern gaming because you listen to a lot of podcasts and they talk a lot about how difficult it is now because there are so many games and the market is so saturated and gaming is becoming so popular with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So what are the challenges that a publisher of your size has when entering the world of hobby gaming? I mean, first of all, you're in competition with every other publisher, large and small. I mean, when you, you know, we talked about Gen Con earlier, and when you're in that hall, and there are hundreds of other booths vying to sell product to the same people that you are vying to sell product to, it's tough. I mean, what what do you do? You do your best to cultivate a market. You're, do you, be, you do your best to maintain loyalty within that market. And then you hope that the products you continue to put out there resonate and 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 that the Venn diagram overlaps to some degree so that you can build on the audience you've cultivated and then extend that audience to new people. I mean, for example, when we launched the Artemis project, setting Endeavor aside for a second, because that as a game has things that go into it that that the Artemis project doesn't. So prior to the Artemis project, every game we had done was a little game. You know, Pocket Ops, two-player, 15-minute, Unreal Estate and Stroop, 10, 15-minute experiences. It was a bit of a leap, at least in my opinion, to ask my audience to follow me to an hour-long dice placement Euro-mechanical game. Um, So I was very fortunate that I did, and I've not done the analysis. I don't know who came over from past projects and who... um, and who is brand new? I'm sure there's some healthy measure of both, quite frankly. But, uh, you know, I, I guess just getting that audience share is probably what is what is critical. And I think it's all the steps I took prior to becoming a publisher that led to that. The fact that I ran an event team at conventions for a decade. The fact that um, I had good friends in the industry because, you know, when I'm running Strongholds Games... It gives me a little bit of leverage to call up Stephen Bonacore and say, hey, man, can you answer a couple questions for me? Um, you know, so I had I had a bit of a presence. But yeah, trying to get that presence these days, my goodness, I, I'll be the first to admit I'm as much a part of the problem as anyone else. Just yet another small publisher and a sea of them. But I feel like once a week I see a new small publisher cropping up and I don't know what their intentions are. I don't know if their intentions are a game or a business. Um, but I, I wish luck to them and hope that we can all all make it. But I do believe I see every bit of the 1990s comic bubble in the modern board gaming market. Well, I was going to say this. I mean, do you see that 
there's a crash coming. How far do we go before the crash happens? So smarter people than me have postulated that it's more like a deflating balloon than a crash. And I'm inclined probably to agree with them more than my own less uh, validated opinion. I guess really what it comes down to is because I personally believe in conventions. So I think it comes down to how big can these conventions get before there's a, a no return on your dollar spent. When when you can go to every convention over the course of a year and make no money and lose money over and over again. Because at that point, are you even marketing? Are you, you know, you're not seeing the people, you're not selling to the people. Um, so, I mean, I think that would be one yardstick by which to measure. Uh, other than that, I saw some interesting discussion recently about, about Kickstarter and the, and I mean, this year is, I mean, every, every, every day is unprecedented, right? But this year is crazy when my inbox blows up with all the projects and all the people I'm following who have backed projects on, on every Tuesday. It's, it's just insane. So, I mean, I think there might be some Kickstarter backlash. I've heard multiple people talk about, you know, smaller print runs that might otherwise have been larger. So I think there's sort of a lot of, a lot of stresses on the situation and uh, it'll sort itself out. Whether it's a crash or a deflation probably remains to be seen. And so I want to go on now to your next game. And this is an extension of what we've, we've been talking about because this is one of your games. And this is the one that people probably know you for the most. And this is Endeavor, Age of Sail. So firstly, why this one? Why bring this one back from the dead? So to be fair... Um, the game was actually brought to me, and the co-publication situation was presented to me by Helena Capel of Burnt Island Games. Um, why bring it back to life is simply a matter of her passion, quite frankly. She, um, she introduced it to me, and I played it, and I was like, oh, heck yes. But when you have a game that, at the time, the old edition was top 200, and you, saw, and, and, you know, my, uh, my graphic designer and lead developer, Josh, was was. In, involved in that project too. And when you have a game like that, that people are clamoring for and with whom they were intimately involved in the creation of, and you, then you have access to the designers and they say, yes, it just was this uh, snowball that kept rolling downhill and gathering more and more snow. And that culminated in, you know, certainly the largest Kickstarter that I've participated in to date. And so why did Helena bring the game to you? And what were the benefits of a co-publication as opposed to just doing it yourself or doing it herself? Because, because I mean, especially as I've seen notice that Helena's just got a a uh, campaign up on Kickstarter at the moment and you've got another one coming up fairly soon. Yes. So I think at the time, and of course I really can't put words in her mouth, but uh, Helena's uh, brand kids table board gaming was certainly not a place that endeavor would go from a publication standpoint. Um, she was looking to create a new identity and I of course had some measure of identity, but even behind that, the skill sets that we bring to the table, um, were, uh, different and complementary. So for instance, I, I love going to conventions and she doesn't love it as much, or at least didn't at the time. Um, she obviously had the uh, inside track to to the designers and and the um, graphic designer being her husband and, and I did not, so she called me up one day and she said, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this, and I think you bring skills to the table that I you do better or that I don't have or that I don't want, and uh, you know, do you want to?" And I looked at it and played it and said yes, and and that's that's where it all came from. 
I mean, do you see yourselves ever doing something like this again? Or or do you feel that you both companies are established enough now that it's kind of not necessary? Well, Helena picked up Endeavor because that was her first gaming love. That, in fact, um, she, she said as much yet again on Facebook today. Uh, that Endeavor was just this thing that she that made her want to be a game publisher and that she knew if she ever had the opportunity, she would not say no to. Uh, whether we would do it again today, you know, I guess if there's the right kind of passion in the right game, I'd absolutely do it again. I mean, every, every publisher is dying to have an evergreen title in their catalog, something that can make everything else possible. I think the jury is still out on whether Endeavor Age of Sail can be that for both of us, but... Among the spectrum of games we each have, I think it's the best contender in terms of its its uh, the story it's trying to tell, its ease of entry. Uh, it's it's certainly a much easier game to get into than uh, than something like Power Grid. And, and what I mean by that is when I teach Endeavor Age of Sail, I literally give people their components and I say to them, pick anything in the first two turns. You cannot screw this up. And I will let the game unfold. And then they'll all go, oh, yeah, this game really does teach itself. And so how do you feel about it now? Now it's in the real world. It's in real gamers' hands. Oh, it's amazing. It's doing everything we wanted it to do. It's whether you have the deluxe Commodore edition or the retail edition, it's beautiful. It is mechanically sound. It is, I mean, it is as close to flawless a game as as certainly is in my catalog. Um and uh, and just, I've never had anyone walk away from the table going, I don't like that. I've certainly had people who don't want to buy it and take it home. But as games go, I think it is um, amazing. And I think it's mechanically holds up to any game that comes out today. And so I want to talk now about the future. So after Endeavor being such a great success, where does Grand Gamers Guild go? That is an excellent question. Uh, so I'm always toying with my timeline and what is possible. Uh, again, I'm doing my very first localization of a game called Shikoku, which is yet again something completely different from anything I have in my catalog. It plays three to eight players in like 40 minutes. So it's kind of that nice, accessible game that you can put in between games when you're waiting for other people to show up or or at the end of a night. Um, my goal is still to, you know, let me change how I'm framing this. Designers ask me all the time, well, what are you looking for? And I basically tell them, I'm looking for anything I don't have because I still strive to provide that breadth of experience that a gamer can engage all night long and, and not necessarily realize that it was my company logo on the box. Um, Endangered is coming up next. It's our first co-op that um, thematically, I think, is something that not 100% unique to the gaming sphere. There are other games that talk about being stewards of the environment and protecting animals, but I think that does it in a way that is both engaging as a game, but also quite serious in the story that it hopes to tell. Um, I think it's a game that can bring families together and present a message that nothing else out there knows that I know of does what does what this game does in the way that it does it. Uh, and then, yeah, my submissions manager is curating prototypes for me. And I have a list that if I had all the time and all the money in the world could probably keep me going in terms of publication out until, what are we in 2019? Probably a good three years. So, and those actually I'm going to be bringing up to play through with, with Josh in a couple weeks here. 
and 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 winnow them down even further. Because these days, as many people say, it's not enough to have a game be good. It really has to be great because almost everything that comes out these days is good. It's you, you need a game that's gonna wow people. And so, if you if people were going to describe Grand Gamers Guild as a publisher, what would you like them to say? Certainly, I'd like them to say that you know the games are providing them the experiences that we that we promised. Uh, I'd want them to say that they felt their money was well spent. I'd want them to say that I provided a medium for them to enjoy time with the people they love around the table. So your next game is another classic from another mercurial, unique game designer. And this is Codenames. So firstly, is this a party game? And if so, is it the best one out there? Oh, is it a party game? That's funny. Um, I, You know, it is and it isn't. It's kind of a game that can morph and be what you want it to be. I mean, it could be a serious, intense stare down across the table, or it could be a raucous good time where once the connections are made, you have this collective gasp of, oh my goodness, yes, I get it. Thank you for being on the same wavelength as me. So so there you go. I've hedged that question. Um if, if you actually want my answer, is it the best party game? Uh, for me, no. The best party game in my book is Time's Up Title Recall by R&R Games. That game is a surefire hit every single time. And even someone like me who's had weight issues and body issues and isn't into a lot of the physicality that, that some people can do without feeling self-conscious, it it entertains every time. And the... The, the 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 language that is created over the the rounds of that game is both a universal experience that anyone can understand but also a unique experience to the people that are at that game at that time so what was your first connection with code names and then and then secondly because I remember playing it the first time. It had a reputation. And then I played it and I thought, my God, this is astonishing. This is utterly original. And and the kind of thing that you go, why the hell didn't I think of this first? You know. So what was your first what was your first experience of codenames? And were you as wowed by it as I was? Uh absolutely wowed. I um I don't buy a lot of games, and I certainly don't buy a lot of games like at conventions the first time I play them. But uh so you know, Codenames had been out for a while, and I just happened to be in the right frame of mind and walked up to the booth and learned what was actually going on. And it was definitely, it was a moment. I, I just remember going, how can so much be done with so little? It's that kind of incredible, surprising hook that I hope my games bring to the table. Um, I, I mean, I think Endeavor does that. I think, um, I think Stroop does that. When you take something that is so reduced down, and yet create amazing things with it. And so where does Vlada, I, I, I'm asking a lot of sort of these kind of questions today, but where does Vlada rank in the list of great game designers? Well, I, I actually uh, almost can't answer that question in the sense that I have not engaged enough of his games uh, and, and been able to contrast them to code names to really provide you a good answer. But obviously you hear Vlada talked about uh, in circles with reverence, always. So I would absolutely say that uh, he deserves to be among the great designers because the experiences that he's putting out on the table are so wide that um, 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that so many different things can come from one person is is way impressive. So one last question. So you're heading off to the cabin, you're going down the road, 88 miles an hour, and you hit the corner and the back seat of the car flies open. Four of the games fly out down a ravine into a river and are swept away forever. Which game do you hope is lying on the back seat of the car? Oh, I, I honestly have been dreading this question and going through it over in my mind again and again and again. Um, and I think I'm going to have to go with Power Grid because one of the things that Power Grid brings to the table that that even all these other great games don't bring is it's so varied based on who you play with and how they approach the game. And you're constant, constantly jockeying your play off of how the other players play. And, and if I'm stranded at the cabin with a group of people, then nothing else is going to provide the level of variety than, than, than the people who come and sit down and play with me. So if people want to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Uh, so you can find us on the web at grandgamersguild.com. Uh, Facebook, look up Grand Gamers Guild as well. On Instagram and Twitter, we are at Grand Gamers Guild, but you have to drop all the vowels. So just Grand Gamers Guild, no vowels. Other than that, you can reach me through the uh, you know email. Click at my website, and uh, and I can you know, and I'm the one m- m- tending all of those things. So you're always you're always talking to me. Brilliant. Well, Mark Spector, thank you very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This was awesome. Everything I hoped it would be. And if you want to suggest a guest, or if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on at 5 games for doomsday on Twitter, or you can send me an email at 5GamesForDoomsday at gmail.com. You can give a rolling donation to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash 5GFD, or a one-time PayPal donation at the bottom of the website 5GamesForDoomsday.com. And if you're feeling swanky... You can buy a t-shirt at tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash five games for doomsday dot com and look a hundred bucks. And if I haven't had to sashay away from the radioactive rhododendrons or the milky, milky tea, I'll see you in two weeks for another Five Games for Doomsday. <laughs>